Um, so my name is Dave Capari. I teach um, intercultural studies at Manhattan Christian College. That's what I do some of the time. Um, and so um, we're going to walk through um, actually the most of the last year. Um, I've been doing research on transformational experiences. And so um, I spent time talking with missionaries who live overseas and tried to categorize experiences that are catalysts for transformation. And, uh, and so the changed output is a changed thought process or changed behavior. And, um, and so um, I'll share a few of the stories from that. We'll maybe go some different ways too, but, uh, but that leads us to this topic of um, understanding implicit and explicit bias. So, um, so what I want you to do first before, as we jump in, you know, because it's morning and we have to like interact a little bit, is uh, I want you to think of um, if you were gonna. So, for my research, um, I was looking at uh, what makes a good leader. Okay, what makes a good leader? But so for you, um, maybe it's what makes good missions. You know, we've been talking about missions all week or what makes a good resident or what makes a good intern and uh, just take a couple minutes and think about how you would answer that question in your area of expertise or your area of interest if somebody said to you what makes a good and you fill in that word how would you what makes a good businessman how would you fill in that word okay so I'm just going to give you a minute to just kind of put a, a definition in your mind of this this good thing that you're trying to think of Is the interesting question is is how did you get to your view of good whatever okay so so now just think a little bit about how did you get to your view of good leadership or good missions or good intern or some of the things that were significant that kind of moved you to that view of good well, this is the interactive part. <laughs> yeah. Well, I the first thing that came to my mind was a good leader needs to be a good listener. And I got to that because I have a number of, of different ministry and, and church leadership positions. And whether whether you're, well, like as, as, a, as a leader in the church, you need to be listening to the congregation and what their needs are. Mm-hmm. And... As a leader in a ministry, you need to always be um, listening to the people that you're ministering to and with mm-hmm. uh, to know what their needs are. And so if you're if you're just off in your own little world, yep. you're totally out of touch. So your experiences have led you to kind of shaping your idea of good here. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. How about some other ones? Yeah. In, in, a, in a secular environment, I would say follow your passion. I don't have to say that here. I can say the, a good leader is somebody that's living in a calling. Okay. And the, what the problem with that is the experience of knowing people that are not, that are, they've got great skills in some areas, but it's just not congruent with their life and their passion and their excitement. Uh-huh. And so they're working hard, 
Uh huh. So, so there's something you're passionate about and that shapes your view of good. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Good. Yeah. I'm in medical education, so I thought of the um, the good resident or student is the one that understands just I've got a limited amount of time to learn here. I need to soak in everything I can. Uh-huh. So that a, a new patient is not something you grumble about. That's an opportunity. I might see something I'll never see again. Uh-huh. And the way I reached that was by thinking of all the bad ones that I've had through the years <laughs> and seeing the consequences of, of a bad attitude and, uh-huh. and not being open to learning like that. So there's some kind of shape of experiences, attitudes, behaviors, all of these things lead to your view of, of good. Uh-huh. So, um, so it's really interesting. Um, in anthropology, um, they would tell you that your view of things are fairly shaped by the time you're 8 to 10 years old. Okay, so your view of things are fairly shaped by the time of 8 to 10 years old. And so um, I was working with missionaries and I'm asking them the question, what is good leadership? And primarily their view of good leadership was formed by their family experience. And so they would tell stories of Here's what my dad did. Here's what my mom did. Here's what I experienced when I was when I was when I was really young. And then what was really interesting is is those those experiences from you know let's we'll just say under ten years old were reinforced and, and reinforced or sometimes reshaped um, in their teenage years. And so I heard lots of stories about youth pastors who. Um, you know, shaped or youth workers who reshaped some kind of view or reinforced some kind of view of good leadership or experiences. I went on a, I went on, a, I did this when I was in high school and, and this reshaped my view of that. And then, um, and then some missionaries who um, were a little bit older had experiences like in church leadership, right? And so again, that kind of reformed or reshaped their ideas. And so, and so, um, and so, when we're talking about this, or as we jump into this, uh, one of the things that we have to start to realize is we grew up in a culture. Okay, and so a culture simply is this. This is um, uh, this is from the book um, Mental Images of National Culture. So a culture is deeply rooted values and personality scripts or mindsets that give direction to actions and responses. These mindsets influence patterns of thought and help shape the institutions of a society. When these mindsets are shared with a group, we call it culture. Okay, and so um, and so, if we um, could spend the next um, couple of years together, wouldn't that be really fun? Okay, if we could spend the next couple of years together, we would create some kind of shared experience with shared meaning, shared values, and that would be culture, and it would shape and influence how we make decisions. Okay, and so um, and so, we grow up in a culture, right? So. Um, if I said to you, you're going to need a toboggan tomorrow, what would that mean to you? We're going someplace cold. Okay, we're going someplace cold. And, and specifically, though, what, what does this word toboggan mean to you? It means a sled or it means a hat. Okay, right. So, so um, my, I grew up in, in Wisconsin and my wife grew up in the Chicago area. And a toboggan is this really long sled that you uh, have multiple people ride on. Okay, so then we moved to Louisville. I was on staff here at Southeast for a few years, and my wife's a nurse. And um, she was working at the University of Louisville one day, and um, one of her patients said, um, oh, this, this, it's cold out. My, um, my spouse is bringing a toboggan in 
for me today. And my wife was like, what? Right, like, what do you mean? Like, and, and, and right, and, and what they meant was her, you know, the spouse was bringing a toboggan in. Like, we had never heard this word before. Okay, and, and, and it, our culture shapes that. You hear a word toboggan and something pops into your, med, your head, there's this mental image. Um, but it's much wider than that, right? There's shared values that, that you begin to operate on. And, um, and these are important because what these do is they shape something uh, that we call worldview, right? And worldview is the way that a person thinks uh, and views and engages their world around them. And so it's shaped by their culture. And so we have shared values, but, but each individual person has a worldview that they then in turn look at the culture around them. Okay, and, and that worldview is distinct, at least how we're using worldview today. So we could have a shared culture. We all have shared values, but we're going to have a distinct worldview. And so, um, and so we're going to look at things differently because of, of those experiences. And, and uh, um, Wilkins and Sanford um, say this. They say, worldviews come at us not as fully formed systems of interrelated ideas, but in bits and pieces. We encounter them through, I can tilt that for you if you want me to, Okay, so uh, Wilkins and Sanford say uh, that our worldviews, they're not fully developed. We actually don't know a lot of what comes into our worldview. So so when this patient says to my wife, hey, my spouse is bringing a toboggan, she doesn't cognitively go back and develop her framework of what a toboggan is, she just... There's just something that, that's there that she assumes, right? Which is not a hat. <laughs> okay, and so, uh, and so um, when I asked you, I asked the people who were here initially to think of what is a good, and I asked them to do it in their area of passion. So a good leader, maybe a good physician, a good, um, <clears throat> a good intern. Um, when, uh, when I asked you to do that, you came up with an answer that, uh, probably you didn't realize that there was a lot of things that were influencing that answer. There's a lot of different experiences that were influencing that answer. Right? And so because you were a part of a culture, it embeds these things and um, you don't realize them. So we lived in the country of Estonia for uh, seven years and um, our kids' first school language is not English, it's Estonian. Okay, our kids are both older now. But when we came back to the U.S., um, <clears throat> when we came back to the U.S., uh, we um, we saw this often in our kids. It was true in us too, but we saw it often in our kids. Because here's what would happen: um, our daughter came home from school one day, and um, she kept going. The teacher wants me to put something in my head. Like she was concerned. The teacher wants me to put something in my head. We're like we're trying to figure out what the teacher wants her to do, and so finally we realize the teacher wants her to memorize something. Okay, but our daughter said, "Well, you don't put that in your head; you put that on your head." Okay, because of the culture that we are in, you wouldn't when you, when you said you were memorizing something, you said you put it on your head. She was so confused, right? Because she didn't realize that she had this this way that she looked at the world. 
So, uh, so what's really interesting is, is what Wilkins and Sanford are saying or getting at is that often what shapes our view of the world, again, I said earlier, uh, most of it is happening when we're under 10, are things like our family, um, the positions that we have, um, our accomplishments, our abilities, our relationships, all of these things shape kind of how we engage with the world. And, um, and so they create this framework that we operate with the world within. And so, and so we start to operate in the world with perceptions and assumptions. We start to operate in the world with perceptions and assumptions. And so uh, perceptions are the framework uh, that, um, that we use to take in information and then potentially give information back. Okay, and I forgot to put it in my PowerPoint, but there's this really great picture um, if you type in, you know, like giraffe and perception online, right? And, and the, the idea here would be um, if there's a painting or if, there's a, if, there's, if I was sitting here with a hat, somebody wants to sit here with a hat, we have a Nike hat on right there. Okay, so if I'm sitting here, I'm looking at your hat and it's really clear to me what this, what, you know, it's a Nike hat because I see the swoosh. Okay, but if we had a giraffe sitting in this room, what would the giraffe see? The giraffe would see maybe if there's a little button on the top, right? <laughs> That's all the giraffe would see. And so we could be looking at the same thing, but our perception influences how we look and engage with this. Right? We can be looking at the same thing, but our perception shapes how we look at this. So, um, so I'm interviewing people who are in their second culture, and I'm asking them questions about, describe to me, um, describe to me what happens when you go into your second culture. What are some of the things that you just remember? And, um, and one, of the, one of the missionaries says, um, he was in the Czech Republic, and he said, I would meet people and it would take 10 minutes. <coughs> He was, it, just, it was crazy. It would take 10 minutes for, for us to have a simple, a simple greeting. He's like, that was just the craziest thing in the world. Okay, I'll give you one uh, from our experience when we lived overseas. We moved to Estonia in January of 2002. And um, um, anybody know where Estonia is located? Yeah, that's right. It's okay if you don't. So, uh, so think um, there's um, there's the Scandinavian countries, Finland, and then there's the Baltic Sea, and then there's Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and then if you kept going this way, there's this little country of Russia. Okay, so so we border Russia, but we're in Eastern Europe, we're in the most northern part of Eastern Europe. And so we get off the plane and we start to, uh, you know, uh, we we get off the plane, we move there, we get into the city, we're going to live, and um, one of the first days I'm walking into the center of the city, uh, I, um, I see a friend uh, about, you're in the black sweatshirt in the back there, um, I see a friend about where he's at, just put your hand up for a second, about, about this far apart, okay? There's a little fountain in between us, and, um, and so we make eye contact. So I know he sees me, and I know I see him. Okay, and, and here's what happens. He watches, and I go to the right side of the fountain. And he goes to the left side of the fountain. Why? What's my potential perception of this event? 
Yeah, he's avoiding me. Like, we just moved here. And this person, who I think is going to be a key leader in helping us develop what we're going to do there, walks and intentionally avoids a conversation. Why, why would I think that? I made eye contact. And, and, and like in, in my worldview, if you see somebody in public, you acknowledge them, you stop and, and say hello. I mean, you have this really beautiful, I can at least have a greeting moment. Okay, so, so, um, so again, so it's important. We're in Estonia, which is in the most northern part of Eastern Europe, and it's January. Does anybody know what's true in Estonia in January? It's cold. It was a warm day. It was probably, you know, in Fahrenheit, it was probably, you know, it was positive, but it was probably five or six or seven degrees. Okay, and, and, um, and in Estonia, especially at this time, when you stop and you greet somebody, there's two things that you have to do. One is you have to take your glove off and you shake hand to hand. You don't shake over gloves. That's just incredibly rude. And the second thing is you have, if you say, how are you doing? Now you're, now you have to have a conversation. Okay, like you can't do the American, hey, how are you doing? Good, good, you know, and walk on. You, you have a conversation because it's rude just to say, how are you doing? And not stop and listen. Okay, and so, and so in my friend's opinion, in my friend's perception, it was actually a better solution to avoid me, right? So we didn't have to stop and take our gloves off and have like a five to seven minute conversation than it was to walk by each other. Okay, but, but my perception in that moment was, oh my gosh, I just moved my family eight times out, and this is going to be a disaster. Right, because what you see is underlying that you have all these assumptions. And assumptions are these deep truths that you hold in your framework, and you hold them as truth. And by truth here, we're not worried about like, you know, is the Bible right or wrong? But this is just what, when you see something, this is what you hold as a truth. And so, and so, uh, Ronald walks to the left, and I walk to the right, and I feel this deep truth. Oh my goodness, this, this is not right. Okay, and, and, uh, and so, um, when we, uh, so we bring these things in, into our conversations, and so, um, and so um, we're going to talk about implicit and explicit bias. And so implicit bias is this. Implicit bias is this then. Implicit bias describes the feelings and thoughts a person carries towards other people, situations, and experiences or associates stereotypes without their, without their kind of conscious consent. Okay, this is an implicit bias. So what might be some examples of implicit bias? What do you think? What might be some examples of implicit bias? Oh, this is the interactive part again. <laughs> time management? Time management. Okay. The view of time could be an implicit bias, potentially. Yep. And, and some of them will flip over. They could actually be a little bit of both. But, but how can time management be an implicit bias? We're, we're living in Kenya, and you tell someone you're going to meet them at 9 o'clock. And we get there at a quarter to nine, mm-hmm. and they show up at 11. Mm-hmm. And nothing is said about it. There's no, I'm sorry, I had an issue. We were, it's just like they show up, and it's like, I'm here. Mm-hmm. So, so generally, and, and right, so implicit bias, generally, if we have these values as a culture, 
And, and we share these values, and they just become something that's so true that, um, um, that as a child you grow up, all this, you don't even realize it. Right? And so uh, time is a significant one. We'll talk about this. My brother lives in Turkey, and we were having a conversation the other day. We are chatting on WhatsApp, and he says, I'm waiting for a student. Okay? So he's the professor, and he's waiting for a student who's late. And so I just, I just curiously said, how long do you wait for before you leave if the student doesn't show up? Which is really funny because in America we would never ask the question that way. It would always be reversed. Right? Like how long do the students wait for us? Okay? But so, uh, and so how long do you wait? This is like the price is right. I should have brought prizes. How long do you wait? What do you think? Until they show up. Maybe. No, he had a time. He said, I'll wait this amount of time. How long do you wait? 10 to 15 minutes, okay. Anybody want to go? How long? Four hours. Four hours. Okay, so, so I will say he, he lives in, in, in a large city in Turkey, but he's out in the village for an hour. He said, I'll wait for an hour. If the student doesn't show up, then I'll, I'll leave. And I said, that's crazy. Well, why do you wait for an hour? And he said, well, people take public transportation, and public transportation is not reliable. Okay, but, but like my natural thought was this, this bias, right? Like I teach and, and if I, if a student doesn't show up, I mark them absent. <laughs> right? But they have to give me at least 15 minutes to show up. Okay, if I'm not there by 15 minutes, then, then they can, they can leave, but, but I would never think the other way around. So, an explicit bias, is one that uh, results from learning and exposure over time. A person generally uses their explicit bias while interacting with a group or society that's outside of their first culture or primary group. This includes things such as race, ethnicity, education level, and even age. And so implicit biases we usually experience when we, even when we're in our culture. Explicit bias we often see when we, we move into an inter or a cross-cultural situation. Okay, so, um, so here's a really interesting one. Um, we're at a global missions health conference, but um, um, I generally talk in wider missions conferences, and so I could ask the question, um, is, um, is who's more intelligent, somebody who's literate or somebody who comes from an oral culture? Who's more intelligent, somebody who comes from a literate or an oral culture? Okay, and, and I won't ask you because I'll just tell you generally what people assume is somebody who comes from a literate culture is more intelligent. Okay, and when we do missions and we go into an oral culture, generally our long-term strategy is to make them literate. Okay, and that's, I'm, and, and let me just caveat, biases aren't necessarily right or wrong. We're just capturing something. We're going into that culture and we go, oh, they're, we don't use the word oral, we use the word illiterate. <laughs> right? And so, oh, they're illiterate. And with this word illiterate, from our cultural background, there's a very negative connotation. Right? If a student, um, if a student's in high school and we give them the label illiterate, it's not a good thing. Okay, but, but if we give them, if we go in, so we go, we bring that into a cross-cultural situation and we say, we don't say, oh, this is an oral culture. Well, there are groups that say that, but, but often we say, oh, this is an illiterate culture. 
right? And we're bringing an explicit bias. There's something that we've learned as part of our culture that this is better than that. Um, and this works both ways, right? So um, when we again, so we lived in Estonia, and uh, um, uh, okay, this is a this is a fun topic, okay? So we lived in Estonia, and there's two really interesting things that happened when we lived there. So one, um, there isn't a word for African American. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, but Estonia is very white, very northern Scandinavian, especially when we moved there. And so somebody who was black would come in, and they would experience this really awkward thing. People would just stare at them. Okay, people would just stare at them, and it, it was it was awkward. But then people, if you wanted to talk about somebody, it was really awkward. Okay, because um, the word for black in Estonia is the same word as dirty. Okay, so you, you don't want to call somebody who's black moost, which is dirty, because it means black and dirty. And so they would use the word nagger. Right, so we would have teams come over with black students on, we did English camps, we have high school students who come over with black students, and Estonians would use the word nagger. There was no um, baggage with that word in their culture. It was the right word. Okay, but if we have black students coming over and they walk by and in the background they hear this N-word, what do you do? You have, you have explicit bias and implicit bias at the same time. You have a lot of tension. <laughs> okay? But you see that these things aren't, 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 um, these things aren't, there's not a value of better or worse. These are things that we just carry with us. And all of a sudden, you hit this, and all of a sudden, there's a significant amount of emotion that goes with it. And so, uh, and so, um, and so here's the, here's the research that, or here's the question that frameworks the last, tw- with, yeah, the last 30 minutes of our conversation. So what happens if you engage in a second culture, or if you engage in a interculture, for those of you that are doing stuff here in the U.S., what happens if you engage in a second or an intercultural situation using a conditionally, conce- a conditioned conceptual framework without understanding that this framework exists? Okay, what do you think happens? Lots of really really fun stories. Okay, but not necessarily really fun stories in the moment, okay, but but lots of really fun stories because uh, because what's going to happen is is potentially conflict, potentially misunderstanding, or potentially a lot of self-discovery. And so it's interesting that you were said uh, we were talking earlier. You said that this is like a, these are buzzwords in the medical field right now, but actually they're opportunity words because um, because we all carry bias. And I don't mean that in a positive or negative things. I just want to say we all carry bias with us, and some of our bias is implicit. There's things that you've just grown up with that you've always thought are normal and true. And so when we talk about time, if you've lived in one culture. You understand um, if an event starts at 7 o'clock, there's a right time to get there. And everybody in your culture knows the right time to get there, whatever time that is. That, that just, you just grew up that way. Right? And so uh, I have a, a man who's always 10 minutes early to class. Okay? And, and he'll walk in, 
And, um, and one day we were talking before class, and, and, uh, and, and I said, why are you always 10 minutes early? And he goes, because even if I'm a minute later than that, he's like, I hear my mom's voice in my head. You're late for class. You're late for class. And he's like, it's just better to be 10 minutes early than it is to hear this voice, right? That is like something implicit that's, that's wrong, that's happening. And then, um, uh, and then uh, there's this, there's a whole set of things. And so, uh, and so I'll give you a resource, but we'll, we'll keep talking. And so um, there's a guy named Hofstede. And so if you're familiar with anthropology, it's a name that you'll, you'll know. There's a guy named Hofstede who's developed cultural dimensions. And so there's six dimensions that he says are true in every culture. Um, things like time, um, there's different ones. And so uh, they have research, a business research, where they've gone into to, uh, several hundred countries. And so you can go to this, um, you go into their um, comparison calculator. So you can go into the comparison calculator and you can put in United States and Kenya and it'll show you where we're, where we're individualistic or how, where we score in this scale and where we score in the, the scale of, of um, individualistic community, um, low and high context. Do people communicate directly or not communicate directly? Um, do people have an orientation towards getting things now or do people wait? Okay, and so, and so this shows you, it starts to show you um, how we live in, with these biases and how these biases start to express themselves across culture. Okay, so, but our, our question then was, was this, um, what would happen if you engage in a second culture using a culturally conditioned framework without the understanding the framework existed? And then what learnings, what, what would experiences would lead to transformation when you go into this culture? What are the, what are some of the keys that help you um, overcome your bias? Or in some situations, change your bias. I talked to one missionary who'd been on the field for um, 25 years and uh, he's somebody who I know from when he started going on the field, and uh, and it was funny because he came. He said, "I just came back to the states not that long ago, and I realized um, that uh, um, I'm so Czech now that when I come back to the states, I have all these. It's like a weird cross-cultural experience for me to come back to the states." And and so he said, "I had a couple of guys with me, and this was just right before COVID. He said I had a couple of guys with me, and they were with my family, and my family said after meeting these guys, oh." Now we understand you, okay? Because he, he's enculturated so much that that's, that's the case. And so, um, and so what learnings um, lead to transformation? And so that's where we'll go. But so, um, so there's two theories at work here. One is worldview theory. So we've talked a little bit about what worldview is. Okay, and the second theory is called conceptual change or conceptual framework theory. And conceptual framework theory simply means this. Um, do you feel like this after a couple of days at GMHC? Mm-hmm. Right? You've got like a, a, a thousand different sticky notes, and somehow you're going to create a filing system for how you put those sticky notes together. Okay, and your filing system is culturally conditioned. Your filing system is culturally conditioned, and so and so when you put your your when you put your things in these different orders, um, it's your culture kind of shapes how you think, and so um, and so because of that, um, you have a framework that that is full of bias. Congratulations. Okay, you have a framework that's full of bias, but but the good news is um, you can experience transformation in that framework. 
And, and so generally, the areas of transformation that happen in your framework um, come from either an incomplete view of what you're going to engage in, an inaccurate view of what you're going to engage in, or an incommensurate view of what you're going to engage in. And so, um, and so now if you go to Turkey and somebody is late, um, you might wait for them with a different attitude because after just hearing this little story, you understand that, oh, in a country like Turkey, they use public transportation. And so they're probably not late because they're rude. They're probably late because their bus was delayed or they missed the bus or if depending on what city in Turkey you've been in, the bus just didn't show up. <laughs> Okay, and so um, and so they're probably waiting for the next bus, and so I'm going to give them enough time for that next bus to come, and and then I'll come and and I'll wait for them, right? So that would be a situation where you have a bias towards time, but your bias towards time has some kind of missing information, and you you fill that information, and now you're going to engage differently. Okay, um, an inaccurate um, an inaccurate um, Framework, or um, again, we're not talking about we're not talking about quote unquote gospel truth. Or your inaccurate truths can come from sometimes false beliefs or or different kind of frameworks, different conceptual frameworks. And so, um, and so my friend, um, he moves into this new culture. How many of you? Have, how many of you have been in a second culture, cross cultural situation? Okay, many of you have been in a second cross-cultural situation. And so think of your cross-cultural situation that you went into and some event where there was just confusion. Okay, so my friend goes into this situation and, um, and he sits in the first meeting and takes them 10 or 15 minutes to introduce them, you know, kind of go through the introductions. They go into another meeting, it takes 15 or 20 minutes for them to do introductions. Goes, he starts to see every place that he's going to formal meetings, there's some kind of introduction that's taking this 10 or 15 minutes. What, what's the tension? Why, is, why does he feel tension with that? It feels like a waste of time. Yeah, it feels like a waste of time. Right? Like, like he's there, we're in a meeting. And it's actually interesting because, because um, um, one, of the, uh, one of the common themes uh, that I found as I was going back through this uh, was this. And then... Um, um, I was reading, um, one of the missionaries lives in eastern Germany, and uh, she said, she captured what four or five other missionaries said. She said, I sit in meetings, and they just go around and around and around and around. And she's like, it's such a waste of time to have meetings. Okay, so, so what, what, what's, what's the bias What's, what's the framework that these missionaries are going in with? Efficiency is, Efficiency is good, potentially, is it? Or, um, like, having meeting names are, uh, aren't that important. Right? So, um, so even, even with this breakout, <laughs> my wife and I were talking, my wife is doing a breakout um, after this, and we were talking, and she said, you know, on, on her slide she has her name, and um, I think four or five different like initials afterwards, and then she was lamenting because she just lost one of her certifications, so she just lost four initials. Okay, four letters. <laughs> and uh, um, and she was lamenting that, and then she said, "What do you have on your slides?" And I just said, "I have Dave Capari." 
Okay? And she said, uh, like, why don't you have any of like, your letters on there? And I was like, I, I was like, people in America don't care. Okay, but if um, I'm teaching a master's class in Estonia, I take 15 or 20 minutes and talk through all of my credentials. Right? Because it, it completely resets the dynamic and, and uh, have a very different view. But, but honestly, to me, I just don't care. I got my PhD in the last year, and one of the other professors at our school jokingly tells people, "I think I was more excited about it than Dave was." Okay, because he like he like he like you know, and, and so, but I have like we just have a different view here, and so um, and so they had an inaccurate view of of how these what was happening at these meetings, and so the guy in the Czech Republic said, "Oh, I learned the language." And when I learned the language, I saw the beauty of the transaction that was happening here. And it changed his framework. He said, I had an inaccurate framework. I thought the introductions were just the dance, I thought the introductions were just the precursor to start the meeting. And he said, I learned that after 10 minutes when I knew the language, it set the whole tone for who could speak and how they could speak and how much weight they had in the meeting. He said, it's really a beautiful thing. But his framework had to be, he had to, he had to change his framework. He had to change this. This idea that it came in. So uh, an incommensurate one is the really interesting one. Uh, incommensurate is is this idea that we have things in our frameworks that um, that when we cross cultures don't translate, or when we go into a new culture, it doesn't um, it, it doesn't just doesn't exist there. And so uh, and so either like we have to create new folder files. <laughs> Or we have to move things from one folder file to another, and uh, um, and it's really interesting because um, uh, we lived in Estonia, and then we uh, we were on I was on staff at a church in in um, in the Minneapolis St. Paul area, and then we came here to Louisville. And um, okay, so there's a really few fun, really fun things in that um, our son was in junior high when we were moving back to the U.S. And we were studying third world countries. My wife was homeschooling in the transition, and we were studying third world countries. And, and my wife said, um, do you know any third world countries? Without missing a beat, our son said, America? <laughs> okay, so, so why would my son view America as a third world country? This is probably... 15 years ago, but I would by son potentially view America as a third world country. Yeah. He grew to the station. So he, 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 our son was a middle schooler. Oh, we were established in 1700. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good try, but that's, that's good. I give you a prize, but I don't have any, but that's a good try. <laughs> Okay, so our son said three things. My, so my wife could a little bit surprised. My son said, she says, Zach, how is America a third world country? And he said, um, the technology is behind. They all have public transportation. And, um, oh gosh, what was the third one? Um, I don't even remember what the third one was anymore. But, uh, cell phones? Well, that would be technology, right? So, so, and, and, uh, and so, uh, um, but he was convinced that America was a third world country. Okay, and, and so um, and so we had to like say, you know, like you probably have like a file folder issue. <laughs> but but to him, when we were in Estonia, um, he could, as a 
sixth grader, he could get on the bus and go any place in the city any time of day he wanted to, and it was normal. And then we um, then we moved to uh, rural Wisconsin in our transition, and then we moved to Indiana, like the Chicago area. And he was like, I, I like I need my parents to go anywhere. I'm like that's crazy. And then um, our son was the last person in his class to get a cell phone. Anybody want to guess when he got a cell phone? 17. Graduation. Oh, remember, he's a junior higher when we came back and he already had a cell phone. So, and this is 2008, 2009. Okay. Um, his teacher called us a month into school and said, she did, we usually spoke in Estonian, she said in English so we would understand, Zaki needs cell phone. So he was the last person in his class to get a cell phone, and he was in first grade. Okay, and so for him, we came back here, and none of his junior high friends had cell phones at that time. To him, that was like there was there was something there, right? And so uh, and so, what you start to see is is our, our how right, that's a society thing, right? Like everybody around him had cell phones. We come back, and nobody around him has cell phones. He has a bias. <laughs> like this is this is crazy here. And, and it starts to even like, man, people's parents here are like, they're not very nice, right? Like, they, our kids don't have cell phones. Like, that's that's crazy how they keep track of their kids. And and you could go all the way through these. And so uh, and so here's what this framework does. For me, here's what this framework did is is I'm listening for biases and I'm listening for transformation. And so uh, this is helping me as I'm talking to leaders to identify. Um, if you're going to experience transformation in this bias, what potentially needs to happen? Okay, so sometimes biases are informational. Like we just need, we have missing information and we need, we need to give some piece of information to move past this bias. Sometimes biases occur because there's something inaccurate in our framework from our culture or society. And so then we either need to, um, we need to give information that refutes the false belief or um, we need to uh, give information that helps them realize that their model is flawed. Okay, or sometimes there's incommensurate situations where we just come in and, and things are so different that the frameworks don't work and our biases just shut us down because, because it's so different. Right, and so, uh, and so we see these playing out in our country in really interesting ways. And so I teach cultural anthropology, so I'm moving away from my research, but I teach cultural anthropology. And um, one of the conversations we have in, our cultural, in my cultural anthropology class is about race. We were talking about that earlier. Okay, and so um, most semesters I have a student, most semesters I have black students in my class. Okay, so we'll do some different activities, and one of the questions that we'll ask is, um, okay, just... Um, just before you answer your question, how many times you've been pulled over by the police in the last three months? Okay, and so the students will go, and so they'll just say, okay, so now, just really quick, show me with your, you know, like just really quick, put your, like one time, zero times, two times, okay, and uh, what do you think we find? I have never had a black male in the class that has, has not had at least a full hand up. And, I, and I've never had a white student who's had a full hand up. Okay, and so and so there's some kind of bias that we're operating in. 
And so now we can start to talk like what's in, in our culture, why do students, why, why are we experiencing this? Is that if, if we were going to think transformation, is there something inaccurate or is there something incommensurate? Or is there something that's just incomplete? And I'm going to tell you, the answer is probably not incomplete because there's so much information out there. And, and I personally don't think I understood this. Okay, for my personal framing, I didn't understand this. We, we lived in Estonia for a number of years. We lived in, in um, the Twin Cities for a couple of years. And then we moved to, um, to Louisville, Kentucky. And when you drive in Louisville, Kentucky, if you drove into town from the, the west coming east, one of the things you drive by is the Muhammad Ali Center. And Louisville, Kentucky has this really deeply rooted issue of race. I mean, historically from the 60s and 70s, there's significant racial events that have happened here. And, and we moved here, and things would happen that were race-oriented, and I'm thinking, oh, that's not that big of a deal. And boom, the city would just, like, boom. Right? Which is really interesting, because we weren't living here, but then, like... The whole Brianna Taylor thing then is really significant, and, and it could have happened someplace else, but the response would have been different than here in Louisville because of this deep conversation about race. I can remember doing visits with people on, on the, I don't even know which side, but someplace that way, right? And, and the conversation of race would come up over and over and over again because of the cultural thing, and, and I actually would have a bias. I'd be like, huh, that's strange. Okay, so, so here's how this hits personally, then I'll, I'll give you some, some more information. But uh, um, we moved to Estonia, I said, in 2001. And um, when we moved there, uh, we, the summer before we went there to get our residence permits, has anybody gone through the process of getting residence permits in another country? If you have, God bless you, it's not fun. Okay, and, um, and so we, um, we made an appointment for 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we walked into this building. Um, actually, it wouldn't be that much different than this. I think we were probably on the third floor. Not this large, but if you think about it. So when we, when, so think of when you came to the parking lot, think of a line of people all the way up to the room that you're going to go in. Okay, and we had an appointment, so we just walked right into the room. And um, for two hours, a lady helped us. Just unbelievable. She helped us for two hours. About an hour and 50 minutes in, I asked this question. I said, can you tell me why are all those people waiting? And the whole dynamic of the room changed. Like, just the atmosphere got really tense. And she said, um, they're Russians. We don't tell them that they can make appointments. It's the first time I ever saw, like, white-on-white racism, and I was just shocked, okay? And so, um, but so for the next seven years... We lived in that kind of environment. And so, um, so we moved from here to Manhattan, Kansas, and um, about a year into our time in Manhattan, Kansas, um, the head of maintenance at our university um, grew up in Russia. She, um, she came over, uh, she was a student, and, um, and uh, she was a student, and um, she stayed in the U.S., now she's the head of maintenance. And something happened, and uh, man, like I responded really uncharacteristically. Like I didn't say anything to her, but I could just feel like there was tension, and I was thinking, this this lady is not qualified to be the head of maintenance. Anybody want to guess, like why? 
And for seven years, we lived in a place where, where there was this, this bias against Russians. And, and actually, it became an explicit bias for me. <laughs> like, I was culturally conditioned. We would hear something, and, and uh, I, people ask you, Do, oh, you live next to Russia. Do you know Russian? And I always go, I know a lot of the swear words. Because that's what that's what Estonians use. Like um, I know derogatory terms because that's what Estonians use. We learn Estonian's a very different language. And all of a sudden, I'm dealing with this lady who I know is Russian. She has a Russian accent, and and she says something, and it pulls me right back into this explicit bias. And and I'm engaging with her through it, which is really interesting, isn't it? And so and so um, and so these are kind of the categories then. Okay, but the question then is. Is um, what are the what are the ways or what are the things that we have to do if we're going to overcome bias? And so um, and so here are the things that are, are significant for my my study. And um, I'll try and leave a couple minutes for questions, or I'll be happy to hang out and, and answer them. And so here they are. So the first thing that's true uh, when you want to overcome bias is you have to be willing to experience disorientation. Um, so my research was primarily geared at um, understanding and talking with North America with American missionaries, but but what I did that was really fun and unique was I talked with the nationals who worked with the American missionaries to ask the American missionaries to ask them like what, what were the things what were the processes that you saw the transformation you saw in the American missionaries, and they all said um, all the nationals I talked to said. Um, when an, American, when an American comes into our country, if they're going to live incarnationally, um, it, it's the worst process to go through. <laughs> they said it's so disoriented that we often see these people feel paralyzed. And and so, uh, but but to get to a point of transformation, um, you have to be willing to go through this process of disorientation. And, and if somebody's not willing to go through this process of disorientation, um, they will, they'll just shut down. Transformation will keep, they'll just keep the bias. Okay, the second thing, um, is that you, um, that we, uh, that learning the language is significant. And this is a really interesting one, right, because especially when we talk about missions, globalization is happening. And so, um, I just ran into somebody who hadn't been in Estonia before, and they were there, and their first comment was, everybody speaks English. Okay, we would do English camps, and we would have junior high students at our English camps, and we didn't translate, because they didn't need it. Okay, so, so the temptation now can be to go into countries and not learn the language. But there's something that happens when you learn the language because language captures these values, it captures this thought process. And so, and so actually as you learn language, um, you actually often can overcome bias. And so, uh, uh, and so learning language is a, is a really significant thing. And actually that's true interculturally as well. Right? So we're here in Louisville, Kentucky, um, but we're at Southeast and and the southeast, this area of Louisville has a different language than if you went um, 30 minutes towards um, the airport. And, and because they're going to use different, even English words for different things, and they're going to engage in things differently. And so, um, and so language is, is really interesting. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, we have students who, yeah, anyway, so language is really great. Uh, the, the third one we've already mentioned is time. 
Um, and so um, we have to examine our, 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 our view of time. And so time is just this concept of, of how past, present, and future connect. And so um, every culture has a different view of time. And, uh, and so um, we have to be willing to view our time. The next one is space. And so space is, is this, this way we, we um, hold our mental maps together, but space is also can be just proximal space. And so uh, we, spent, we spent a lot of time in Poland, okay? And, and I don't think it's as true now as it was when we started, started going to go to Poland, but um, Poles are known for their Polska. Well, wait, wait, that's all right. Right, right. What's the, what's the music that Poles are known for? Polka. Polka. Sorry, Polska is how you say Poland, but I'm sorry. In, in, but Pol, uh, but what was it? Polka. Okay, so but so I was talking with a Pole one of the first times I was there, and um, and so we're having a conversation, and he's like this. Okay, like he is like this, and so so I take a step back to get some personal space, and he takes a step back with me. And by this point, I'm like curious, right? So now I take a step to the left, or <laughs> right, right? You know, he takes a step with me, and so now I'm like wondering, like, if I go like this, can he, you know, can he take a step back? But it's like we're dancing almost, right? But but we have just different ideas about how space occurs, and and those are those are biases, and so we have to understand this uh, this concept of space. Uh, we've talked about perceptions and assumptions, uh, but we carry perceptions and assumptions with us, and then. Um, uh, and then uh, differences in rights and wrongs. And, and so um, our natural response when something happens is to judge it as right or wrong. And, and that judgment often comes from our culture. Actually, anthropology would say um, we don't use logic to develop rights and wrongs. We actually have some kind of emotive response of what is right and wrong. And then we build the judgment to, to fit what we think. And so, and that's our bias. And so, and so, I list these because um, when we start to talk about implicit and explicit bias, uh, these are tools that help us overcome it. But actually, um, but actually, the process for us as we start walking through this, or as we start talking about this with students, is um, is when you feel tension. This is when you have to stop, and you actually have to be reflective and start to say, like, what is the bias that I'm carrying here? Why? What's giving me the response that's that is is pushing me to this outcome, and so um, and so what I get to do is I get to train students, and so we um, we actually have um, I think it's like ten activities now that we do with our students that um, um, are geared towards helping them understand their biases. So uh, first we make them talk with each other, and and then we make them go out and talk with somebody who they don't know, and, and then we have uh, uh, this 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 different things, but. But the goal is um, for them to overcome their biases. They have to start to realize they exist, and uh, and they and uh, and often they don't, right? And so one of the one of the last stories is um, from this semester. We teach a I teach this one class, and we talk about sustainability, and um, and we have to watch. There's a really old dated video called The Story of Stuff. Has anybody ever seen The Story of Stuff? Don't watch it. You'll hate it. Okay, but our students, uh, it goes through the process of consumerism. And what we learned as a class was that our bias is towards consumerism. We just think it's normal. Right, and so, and so it was really interesting because this girl um, came to class the next day and um, she had a, a reusable water bottle and she had her lunch in a, 
a, you know, like a plastic Tupperware container. And I, I didn't realize what had happened. And so I said, I said to her, Anna, oh, that's a really interesting lunchbox. And I was kind of joking with her. And she said, Capri, I'm not very happy with you right now. <laughs> you know, she said, I watched this video and I realized that she started to talk about what she realized. Right? And, and she realized, like, I had to make a change. Or I had to say this was okay. And that's what, and that's what these categories are pushing us towards, is, is to understand that we have these biases and that we can make a change, but actually that it's a significant thing to do because it's going it's to mean that we're going to rewire some things that are up here that we have to rewire. Uh, I would love to share some resources with you. I did post a bibliography, but if you're happy, if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. But we are actually at 8:59 right now, so um, so I am going to stop, release you. But um, I'm happy to stand up here and dialogue more with you if you have questions or, or want to dialogue more. So thank you.